2: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Sakevich. In this episode, I will be speaking with Beatrice Hooser, and we will be discussing her book, War A Genealogy of Western Ideas and Practices, that was published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Beatrice Hooser holds the Chair in International Relations at Glasgow University. From 1991 to 2003, she taught at the Department of War Studies at King's College in London ultimately as Chair of International and Strategic Studies. From 1997 to 1998, she worked in the international staff at NATO headquarters in Brussels. Between 2003 and 2007, she was Director of Research at the Military History Research Office of the Bundeswehr in Potsdam, Germany. She is also the host of the Talking Strategy podcast for the Royal United Services Institute, or RUSI. Uh, Beatrice... uh, Hoozer, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you very much, and thank you for having me.
2: Yes, this was a very fascinating book and also very highly relevant uh, to our world today. Uh, Usually we like to begin our interviews by asking our guests, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's the backstory behind writing this book?
1: Well, the backstory about being interested in war, acutely interested in war, is twofold. One of them is that I have parents who grew up in Central Europe, and from very early age, told me how absolutely awful war was, and, and really told me war was an absolute evil and was horrendous, and um yeah the the worst time ever, and we had to avoid it at all costs. Uh, the other is that we lived, uh, I was born in, and we lived in Thailand. At the Vietnam War, while I was living in Thailand in the 1960s, was spilling over from Vietnam and the Cambodia and was coming towards the Thai border. So we quite literally worried about the Vietnam War spilling into Thailand as well, across uh, Cambodia, as I said. So I was living in real fear of war from that point of view, particularly with the the stories of my parents behind that, and also in fear of particularly nuclear war because I'd, at a very inflexible age, read Neville Shutes on the beach which is this story about uh, a nuclear war.
2: Yeah, so uh, there, at the heart of this book is this dynamic or dialectic, if we want to get Hegelian, between ideas and war. And this is a complex relationship, not usually dealt with in a lot of scholarship, but it is there. Could you kind of give us a little bit, I, I know it's a complex topic, but could you kind of summarize, like, what is this dyna- dynamic between the two?
1: I suppose one would call me a a constructivist, and I'm one of those people who have been a constructivist all their lives without knowing that, like Monsieur Jourdan, who'd spoken prose all his life without knowing it. Um, And basically, there are actual neutral or objective factors that would drive people to steal from somebody else if they can't survive, unless they take the food of somebody else. So if you are in a a drought or something like that, and a famine, you will invade your enemy's territory or your neighbor's territory in order to steal their food. So there are hard factors driving people to war, but there are also constructed factors. And most of the reasons that we find for people going to war in more sophisticated societies are these constructed ideas. That's where the ideas come in. So if you go to war because you have this idea That Ukraine is the cradle of Russiandom, of Russianhood, and therefore it has to be part of Russia. That's amazingly constructed. It's not at all something about how you desperately need their grain. Uh, So ideas matter massively in why we go to war, but also in how we prosecute war, who fights, who the enemy is, how you treat them. Ideas
2: are all over the place. Now, one of the important sources for Western ideas about war Is the legacy the religious legacy of the Jewish and Christian heritage? Can you explain the importance of these these legacies?
1: Um, One should add to those also um, the Greek and the Roman, because it's really these four uh, taproots. The Jewish one is very important because in Judaism, in the Hebrew Bible. There is a God saying, go to war. In particular context, it's actually Yahweh who says, go to war and go and kill and kill everybody and spare not their ass or their donk, their cow, uh, and spare not their children, their women or anybody else. Um, so there is a an authority, a just authority telling you to go to war. In the uh, Greek tradition, there's also... Uh, there are. Very um, evil gods, if you like, the gods who are themselves bickering all the time and fighting with each other all the time and also driving their supporters on to war. Um, in the Roman legacy, it gets different because there's more the concentration on, uh, particularly in the later Roman period, on one god, Jupiter, one who makes order, who creates order out of chaos. And there is much more emphasis on more sort of legal procedure. And that's something that we still are with today. Uh, Christendom mixed all those. And Christianity mixed all those up and has on the one hand got the idea uh, that there are particular circumstances in which you are commanded to go to war and it's it's just to go to war and it's right to do so. Uh, at the same time, there is the idea that war is terrible evil, that really applying now the, the Christian tradition that you should turn the other cheek, you should not uh, avenge uh, things that have been done to you. And the whole thing becomes a very complex mix, um, a mix drawing on these different tap roots and mixing up legal procedure and um, also ideas of restraint that you do find in Greek and Roman thinking about war. Um, whereas the the Jewish one, as I just quoted, this there are instances where Yahweh is pretty unrestrained and pretty merciless.
2: Now, what are some of the earliest evidences we have uh, thus far of war or, as sometimes called, organized uh, violence?
1: That's terribly difficult to define. To with definitions, um, because when we're looking for evidence of war, war rather than, say, a massacre or rather than, say, a mass sacrifice, some of the archaeological findings could lend themselves to the interpretation that people there was a mass sacrifice to the gods. We know this from the Mayas who used to sacrifice their enemies to their deities. And think about it that way: that you, so you might find lots of skeletons, but you don't know why they've been killed and whether they had the, the possibility to fight back, or whether they were already prisoners and therefore it, this is a unilateral massacre. So first of all, that's a difficult one, and um, you could only really be quite sure that you have two sides, two armed sides in a war. If you can imagine finding, after a battle, uh, two separately buried groups of people who also have different artifacts, where you get the impression that they're different, really different, culturally different people. Uh, when you find that, when you first find that, um, then you still have the problem that these are very, very small numbers compared with what we would t- t- today define as war. And uh, there is a sort of project trying to uh, quantify a war and trying to, to look at uh, war um, from the point of view of uh, a number of occurrences and, and numbers of uh, victims, et cetera, that only defines war as something that has got more than a thousand casualties. Now, um, that means that all these historical or archaeological examples would be ruled out because they're tiny. And... Um, and therefore, but also you'd find, that, say, the Falklands War, but you ruled out because it didn't actually have a, a thousand casualties. So that's a problem in itself. But it means that we have real problems with these really early findings. Um, we could still say this is war because you have two groups, if you can really distinguish them um, from the point of view of their weapons and things like that. Um, but that means that we only have evidence for this for the last um, 10,000 years, less probably than 10,000 years. And that is, of course, a small fraction only of human history. The problem with that is that um, the absence of the of any evidence is not the evidence of absence. Uh, still, I would take issue with people who say that war has always existed. As long as human beings have existed, there's been war. And in a way, it gives some um, some, some faith or some hope to those of us who are constructivists because it allows us to hope that if war was only introduced at a late stage in human society, in human existence, and it was only invented at a late stage, perhaps it can be disinvented.
2: Now, you did touch about this in your, previous, uh, uh, in your previous answer. What have been some of the major ways that war has been categorized in the Western intellectual tradition?
1: The categories we've applied to war are, again, an example of heavy constructivism. Uh, we look at things and say, ah, oh, this is a very comprehensive effort, therefore it must be total, and then we disregard the fact that there have been people who have defined total in many different ways. You have, for example, total defined as something that includes genocide, you have others defined total without including genocide. And um, We have major war. What is major war? Is that the same as total war? Is that Does that only affect uh, you? Is, does that only exist once you have an industrial age where you can bring in... Um, Lots of technology, lots of firepower. Um, the categories that have existed sort of from everything uh, from uh, irregular warfare to to uh, major war um, to high intensity warfare, etc., are all very much human constructs. And I've always found it greatly. Um, befuddling that if you try to teach students about this and you talked about categories, the moment you went into any historical examples, the categories would already break apart because they wouldn't quite apply for something that happened a hundred years before that, or quite apply to the next war. So if we think of it as a sort of very Western style, and the West is very prone to this, dualism between, you know, limited war and unlimited war or major war or low-intensity conflict or something like that. We always find that, in fact, we're talking about very specific conflicts at a very specific historical period, but not something that can be easily generalized across uh, 2,000, 3,000 years of history, recorded history, book with which we could play so there's nothing like those uh, human constructs the so one thing we can tell obviously is that at some stage uh, technology changes things um and at some stage um say what we had in the second world war uh, is really incomparable with the bombing of cities and things like that with say the napoleonic wars but even there you get into very slippery slopes because you had bombardment of cities even before that so for example when you hear of the bombardment of Dresden, you always think of the Second World War and the fourteenth of February 1945. But in fact, Dresden was heavily bombed in the eighteenth century. And one of the reasons that it is very eighteenth century, it was this very eighteenth century city, was that it was really destroyed in the middle of the eighteenth century, then built up again. So, you know, all sorts of things had existed in some form before. And all the categories really only apply to their own time frame when they are defined.
2: Kind of reminds me about the the debates about uh, Max Weber and the ideal types, how he tried to kind of deal with that issue uh, with religion. But, of course, religion and warfare, as you just mentioned earlier, they are connected.
1: Excellent observation, yes.
2: Yep. So uh, what are some of the major, quote, revolutions, end quote, that have been affecting Western warfare? You did touch upon... This in your previous answer that how technology and so forth changes it and this concept of military of revolutions is often used to mark like different periodizations in western uh, war can you kind of bring us through some of those
1: well one theory uh which i obviously like very much as somebody who still has this hope that mankind will one day be able to overcome war Uh, is that war was only introduced into Western society with the agricultural revolution. Now, when we think of the word revolution, we normally think of something that happens very quickly and very intensively. The agricultural revolution took uh, thousands of years to spread. And even today, you have people who haven't settled down and have not become agriculturalists. And then you have other people who have long stopped being peasants and have long started doing something else. So is the agricultural revolution over would be one of those classic student exam questions where you can only score very well by saying, oh, this is a stupid question. Um, so was there an agricultural revolution here? In some respect, there was, put it that way. Um, uh, more than 10,000 years ago, we didn't have the sedentary people who were accumulating through agriculture, stocks of grain and things like that, that somebody else might covet and that somebody else might, against their resistance, steal from them. And it seems, it could be argued, that it is not a coincidence, that this is about the time where we find the first evidence of two groups of people going to war with each other, rather than one group massacring another, or something like that. Okay, so agricultural revolution would be one. Um, Then uh, the argument has been made uh, that it was an interesting and important, uh, relatively small, but meaningful A revolution, um, the invention of the stirrup. The invention of the stirrup, which took a few centuries to spread from somewhere Central Asia, China, something like that, um, to the West. And and because suddenly that meant that somebody on horseback uh, could have much more strength and fighting power because they would be much less easily um, unhorsed uh, by their opponent. And that meant that you could really um, the the horseman um, was suddenly, or the 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 uh, personal horseback was suddenly a much more dangerous opponent, and could be. It was very difficult to fight by a, a foot soldier, until and then comes bow and arrow. Uh, until you get the point to the point where um, you have very strongly penetrating um, arrows, and that's of course the invention of the crossbow and the longbow, more or less at the same time. Those come and in a whole period of different technological uh, changes uh, towards the end of the Middle Ages. And it's quite interesting that clearly everybody was trying to um, progress technologically. There are all sorts of little things that come at the same time, um, more or less the same time. So that's a bit of a cluster of smaller revolutions, which in the end, uh, do mean that the and well, an old interpretation is that then after that the uh, age of the night is over because now that you have a different strength now for um lowly orders who can suddenly use uh, um, distance weapons, standoff weapons. But very importantly, of course, uh, is then the great growth of a firepower, transport, and various other revolutions that come together. Technological innovations that come together at the end of the nineteenth century. Um, with the measures, the countermeasures, so you have the torpedo and then you have the, the, the armoured ship um, as a reaction to that. So whole clusters of innovations at the end of the 19th century, revolutionary, if you like. Then you have a new wave of looking for ever more destructive weapons, uh, where you can bunch together uh, in and around the first and second world war, uh, the development of chemical weapons, much increased firepower. Um, uh, the use of aircraft to not only reconnaissance, but to uh, bomb things. Uh, And then, of course, culminating with nuclear weapons um, or the atom bomb. Um, So again, there seems to be a cluster of innovations, which really culminates in something which is unparalleled by all the other revolutions. And yet you can see that it comes in a sort of um, a wave of revolutions or innovations that are in themselves then, even with, you know, basically if you hadn't invented the atom bomb, I think research on something like biological weapons might have gone further and one, one might have found it, them apply. So there's the, the will to innovate, the will to go to a more destructive age, Um, Now, of course, people talk about the IT revolution. Um, I'm totally um, persuaded that this is an enormous change to our lives. I see it in my research and everything else. I'm just always worried about what will happen when somebody switches off the light. Uh, And I think that this is the thing that we should all plan for more than for anything else, namely how to get back to very basic ways of um, defending ourselves in case the other side manages to do that for us, which off the light, the internet.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, I've been hearing about that with, uh, yeah, there was also the debate for a while of uh, electromagnetic uh, pulse uh, weapons that can do that. Exactly. So forth. Now, what major area of source of ideas of war is in the ethical tradition? Now, how has uh, the ethical tradition in the West dealt with the uh, the conceptions of war?
1: Um, well, actually, the ethical tradition uh, is something that subsumes a tradition of just war. Um, and I think there is a fairly widespread recognition, really, in all cultures that there is this really, really bad side to war, uh, but many cultures have developed the idea that in some contexts, they have to be very clearly defined contexts, it might be permissible to go to war. And in fact, there seems to be a universal recognition that you can defend yourself and collectively defend yourself, not just yourself personally, but even in Christianity, where in the theory you've got this turning the other cheek thing, um, you have the concession that you should be allowed to defend somebody next to you who can't defend themselves. Yeah, so people who are uh, unarmed and, and somebody else you can't you can't turn the other sheep for a sheep, she- sorry, for a second person or for other um, uh, undefended people. So there are these limitations that come out of a tradition, um, an ethical tradition that has its roots interestingly, very much in pre-Christian times. Um, And uh, I have a colleague, uh, Keanu Driscoll, who's done some really good work on this in which he's actually found that there are such ethical assumptions, even in ancient Greece, although they are not very well articulated and they never assumed they're a sort of legal code or they became a legal code, whereas we can assume that by the time of the late Roman Republic, there was something of a legal code of a use at bellum of conditions that have to be met in order legitimately to go to war. All of these traditions tend to assume that you can only go to war if some evil has been done to you, if something wrong, some wrong has been done to you and you're trying to either defend yourself because the the wrong is ongoing, you're being attacked, or that something has been taken for you and you have the right to try to go and recover it. And then in the Roman tradition already, and this is very important to me because it's pre-Christian, and I, I really underscore this because it makes it easier for us to say it's something that should apply to all cultures of the world and not just sort of Western neocolonialism to talk about this. And so it's pre-Roman, it's pagan. It's very emphatically pagan originally. Um, a list of criteria that have to be fulfilled for this to be a war to be legitimate, which include that you must show that you have this grievance or you've been attacked and that you also must give the adversary the right, the possibility, the time to restore whatever they've taken from you or to right the wrong that they've committed, which is, of course, a fiction. It's another human construct because you can never totally right a wrong in the sense of if somebody's attacked you or destroyed your cities or just killed people, they won't come alive again. Whatever the enemy does now to to um, uh, expiate those crimes. Um, But the theory is that you're trying to right the wrongs, then another one which is possibly the oldest of all traditions is that this has to be ordered by a legitimate authority and you have a very long tradition uh, of saying this can only be God or God's representative on earth or some legitimate ruler and it has to be done with a particular aim which is to right the wrong and not because you really, really, really enjoy killing and destroying and that's very difficult. Um, that's very, very difficult because even you find even Aristotle and, and uh, other Greeks talking about how the soldier has to have a pure intention. They must not be people who now really enjoy going on a killing spree. And doing that and getting that balance right between people who have to feel aggressive when they're fighting because otherwise they really won't have any chance of survival... Uh, and getting them into a sort of uh, monkish uh, approach, of saying I'm only I don't hate you, I kill you, but I don't hate you, yeah. is a terribly difficult uh, psychological idea to to put through. Okay, um, and we find this whole tradition then, of course, taken up by the uh, Catholic Church. Uh, but we find it also in uh, much more recent documents of the UN, under Butras Butros something like that was developed, uh, by a group of thinkers who did, uh, included representatives from all cultures of the world, or all major cultures of the world. So I think it's a set of criteria, this ethical uh, tradition, that is now universally recognized, even if you find people uh, in, in various places saying, um, they don't recognize it because they didn't develop it themselves, not invented here.
2: Yes. Uh, in fact, what you were mentioning uh, reminded me there was a recent book just, uh, I haven't read it yet, but it's by uh, uh, Rory Cox, Origins of the Just War, where he traces it to the ancient Near East. I haven't read it yet. I've only read his one essay for Engelsberg uh, uh, ideas. That was really uh, interesting. But yeah, this awesome. is a tradition.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's it's an excellent a, researcher, and I, I learned a lot from him, yes, on the medieval period.
2: Yeah, so there's uh so yeah, even uh this it it is a long tradition. It's not necessarily exclusively uh Christian or Jewish, but you know, it, it is something you see in a lot of different cultures. Now, what have been kind of the ideas that have been debated about like the roots and causes of war? Uh you mentioned here that War, as far as we can tell, only appeared 10,000 years ago. But so what are some of the major reasons or root causes of war that have been debated in the Western intellectual tradition?
1: I'll go through them in the logical order rather than the chronological order. The logical order is that people have said, look, nature is red in tooth and claw, so it must be something to do with nature. So there's been a whole tradition that is said well nature is evil therefore e- e- nature contains evil and therefore uh, and war is always going to be there, animals uh, some categories of animals kill each other and therefore human beings uh, can't possibly get rid of that biological strand of their existence, that animal strand of their existence um, then you have uh, the idea of just saying oh, actually it's only humans which is of course wrong because we know that uh, various sorts of apes and some macaques and some other Animals do actually fight in an organised way, group against group. Um, but to say it's only humans is something that you find intimately connected with religions that try to point to sin or uh, virtue and try to make humans choose virtue over sin and try to say, well, there's this sin that is 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 uh, is it innate in human beings or can human beings fight against it? But then, in some way, say it's it's to do with the human. Fallacy or the human uh, evil in human beings. So it's pointing towards human beings. Um, then, um, more to, uh, later in history, particularly around the time of um, the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance, um, thinkers started to say, well, actually, whether your peasant in his village or her village um, is evil or warlike doesn't matter at all. Uh, what matters is the vices of princes. The selfishness of princes who try to enhance the territory, the possessions of their dynasty. It is they who are wicked and who bring about war. It's nothing to do with your ordinary guy uh, or gal in the street. It's to do with the princes. So it's all about the vices of the rulers. And then very interestingly, you get from um at various stages from thirteen hundreds onwards, people saying, well, it's not just um, the vices of individual princes, it is how they interact. This is where we get really interested in, or we're beginning to see the origins of thinking about international relations, because they say, look, um, you can have a very virtuous prince, but that's no good if that virtuous prince lives in a society of other princes where the others are all terribly selfish and wicked and just want to enhance their, their gains and their, increase the territory they rule over uh, by, by violence, by war. Um, so it isn't, it's not isn't—it's not about how an individual prince is or ruler is, but it is about their interaction. And even from 1300 onwards, you get people saying, if we could somehow change the rules of the game, create a different international order with different rules of behavior, then perhaps we could have a peaceful world. So it is suddenly people thinking about, or rather gradually, people thinking about the rules of inter- the international order which is extremely relevant for us today. Because today, we, the West, is defending an international order in which war is outlawed as a tool of statecraft, whereas we're finding explicitly in the major strategy documents of Russia and China that they are rejoicing in the decline of this international order, and see here the possibility that they can change this international order In their own interest, very much going back to a sort of 19th century um, situation where powers would try to make the best of any situation and just greedily um, use it for their own purposes. So this gradual development of people thinking, you know, it's is it biology? Is it the human only? Is it human society? Is it the international society? Is a fascinating. A gradual evolution of people's thinking about the origins of war and
2: the causes of war. And perhaps the truth is a little bit of a mix of all of, all of them together, perhaps.
1: Uh, I don't know. I've never personally really, really felt tempted to kill anybody. Ah, but then I, haven't been ex- I haven't been exposed to a situation. I mean, I've been exposed to a situation where I really, really, really hated somebody, but even then, I found it very difficult to imagine wanting to do them bodily harm. I mean, the worst I'd ever t- thought of that I wanted to do somebody was sit them in a chair, tie them up, and lecture at them, which must be a terrible punishment.
2: Well, that must be a slow death. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <what> I suppose. <laughs> now, one interesting uh, idea within the Western tradition is concerns military service, particularly two main ideas, that of the what we commonly call the citizen-soldier, where in some ways, military service is part of your uh, your duty as a citi- as a citizen. And then there's also professional soldiers who do this for as a li- as a professional living. Uh, what has been this dynamic and the ideas of such? Because this even goes back to ancient Greece and Rome, too.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely fascinating. And it's a wonderful case where we can see that reading about what the ancients thought, was very important for later generations, even if very often they totally misinterpreted it because they tended to use words from antiquity to apply to their own society, thinking that they were getting it right, when in fact there were huge differences in the the way these societies were ordered. It's great because, for example, we have Christine de Pizan, um, using the word miles for the, the, uh, the, the, the person on horseback uh, as mini-knight. You know, he is, she assumed that the cavalry of ancient Rome was the knights of her own time. So very interesting from that point of view. But what's also very interesting is, again, this fantastic example of a constructivism in the sense that um, you in, in theory, you really just get a simple situation. Imagine your village is attacked. Uh, anybody, uh, this is this is a fight for survival, surely everybody will do something in order to defend. And how they organize it particularly, whether there are people who've learned to hunt and kill an animal with a sword and therefore have a sword and therefore will use that, or whether people will use a pitchfork or whatever they do, um, everybody will somehow have this, this uh, impulse to, to defend, defend themselves. So you can see that some of them will hide away and possibly try to protect small children, um, but you can see that everybody would be somehow involved. Um, now, at the the more sophisticated society becomes, and you have this theory which comes from uh, the Frenchman, uh, who detected that in more sophisticated Indo-European society, there seemed to be a sort of division of populations into people who were priests, into people who were professional soldiers, fighters, and then the farmers. Obviously, not three groups of equal size, uh, but some sort of distinction or division of labor between the farmers who provided the food and those who went and fought. Um, now, you do get that uh, that pattern in societies from definitely um, the Middle East uh, into Europe and, and in India as well. Um, having said that, you also uh, keep getting people uh, getting people returning to an older pattern if their existence is totally uh, at stake. You know, In siege warfare and something like that, you do again find that everybody is in there. Uh, also, you then find that if this, this idea of a particular group only uh, being made to fight is not actually universally there in antiquity, because you have, for example, in the Roman Republic, the idea that in fact every Roman citizen... Uh, should have this ob- this this uh, obligation to fight. Now, the R- Romans had slaves, so the slaves didn't count it. But the idea that everybody who was a citizen and male um, should fight is suddenly um, a sort of universal idea that translated in a post-slavery society, French Revolution onwards, um, suddenly means everybody in that citizenry should go and fight. And you can see how each time that an idea is translated and transferred and taken up in another culture, in another Age in another period. Um, it gets adapted to the particular um, construction of that society with people very often ignorant or uh, excluding or not looking at the big differences between the society of the original idea and the society in which they're applying it. Okay, so that leaves us with some ideal of every citizen having the obligation to defend his or her polity, usually his, from the French Revolution onwards. Um, but in fact, you already had something like that in the Middle Ages where you had the feudal host, which meant that if you were that little uh, peasant and you had your little your feudal lord, your feudal lord would say, you owe me 40 days service every year. And war then being a seasonal activity, every uh, peasant had this obligation. Um, so you already had these ideas before. And in many respects, this idea of the citizen soldier or the French Revolution is taking old wine and putting it in new bottles. Yeah. Um, but then it never really was applied entirely. There was always people who there were always people who were excluded from that. You always ex- well the antiquity you excluded slaves because you armed your slaves. Ooh, they might rise up against you. Um, you excluded um, women, largely, although there are probably always women somewhere in there who desperately tried to get away from home. I have some sympathy for this. Um, then there were uh, old people who were left out, children who were left out. So it was somebody who was always excluded. And then you probably got to the point where you said, not, is everybody fit to do this? And um, some people are not, so you leave them out as well. So even in societies where you had conscription and universal military service, at least for all young boys, Um, You always had a pretty large number of people who were left out to the point where, for example, before France and Germany suspended uh, conscription um, in uh, around 2000, 2010, uh, respectively, um, just before that, people had felt that there was a huge uh, injustice in the fact that so many people could get away with saying, well, I've got flat feet and therefore I can't possibly do my military service, thereby saving two years of their lives. And doing other things in two years of their lives was with other people that other a third or something like that of the each pro, of each generation had to devote um, mm-hmm. one two years of their lives to the community in this way. So in fact, the realization has never been really clear. Uh, and then you say saying you know on the one hand you have conscription or the idea of universal military service on the other hand professionals. Well, even in armies where you have Uh, Everybody uh, fighting, uh, as um, sorry, everybody doing this military service, you have a cadre of people who are professionals. They train the people who are passing through. So in fact, you've always had a mix. And the only thing that is really, really um, important, and I think that really takes us to the subject of um, mercenaries, Um, The the really important innovation comes around uh, shortly after the French Revolution with this curious idea um, that you have to be born into a particular polity, on a particular soil, in order to fight for that country, otherwise you are a mercenary, otherwise you are just a professional soldier, and that that is not as good as fighting for your, your native polity. And that's also a very strange idea because yes, there are people who just fight for filthy lucre or are nothing but uh, are not ideologically invested. Um, but even in the French Revolutionary Wars, a lot of people would fight for one or the other side for ideological reasons. Um, so if Poles fought for the French for Napoleon, that was at the same time for their independence from Prussia and Russia. You know, so there are lots of ideological reasons why you might fight join the armed forces of a polity on the side of which you weren't born. So it's a real mess. It's a real mess. And any order that people have tried to apply into this or bring into this has been totally a human construct and is really inapplicable the moment you move, you know, 10 years later or 10 years earlier.
2: Now, how does the treatment of civilians uh, fit into this mix? How has... The Western tradition addressed this issue over time.
1: Well, that's also a very, very big and strange subject, because the more I've looked at it, and I must add the caveat that I'm not a proper classicist, and I may have to be corrected on this one, but I see precious few um, pieces of evidence, or precious little evidence, that in classical antiquity, there was such an idea as Clarity and compassion for simple civilians. You do get in scenes like Caesar, you get stories about how there has been this one courageous so and so soldier or woman or whatever, and then Caesar or some general spared them because they were so amazingly courageous. But on the whole, there is just no compassion at all for civilians. They're sold off as slaves, they're butchered, they're massacred. It is normal um, in siege warfare if the the, the town falls to, to massacre everybody, if, if the soldiers feel like it. Um, and it's really only, I'm, I'm putting up this really daring theory, um, although I'm pretty anti-ecclesiastical a lot of the time, I'm putting up this really daring theory that the idea of compassion really comes in with Christianity. Um, or at least in Europe, and that's it. It bothers me myself because I'm I'm so critical of, of, of so much of what the the church did, particularly in the Middle Ages uh, and in early modern times. But it does seem to me that suddenly there is this idea that even the lowliest person should be protected, and it is with Christianity um, that from about the ninth century you get a strange um, a new thing, which is that churches, particularly coming from starting in southern France. Try to impose on this warrior class that is very much inspired by sort of Germanic ideas of the more you kill, the better you are, um, limitations on whom they can kill and try to impose on them the idea that you shouldn't go around massacring peasants. And from what I've been observing, uh, or from what I've read, what I can find is that little by little, until about the 15th century, um, the church the catholic church and i'm really talking mainly about uh, the west here uh, managed to persuade people uh, that in principle they shouldn't kill their own peasants in order to extract food for their armies for example that they should spare their own peasants and then um but no, nobody ever talked at this stage about um what should happen to people on the other side and that's actually where rory cox comes in rory cox has done a lovely little stu- uh, study on the um, wars between England, Scotland, and France in the late Middle Ages, where he has found that occasionally English armies going north of the border to Scotland occasionally would spare an abbey or a village or, some, or town and say, uh, but if you only if you surrender to us, we might spare you, but then we'll give you a special privilege of sparing your civilians. So this creeps in, and by the mid-15th century, we suddenly find evidence of the Dukes of Burgundy beginning to say, well, actually, we should also spare the populations of the enemy side because we don't really think that these populations are the people driving the war. They're just the, um, the subjects, they're the tools of the other side. They should be spared. And little by little, we have a spread of an idea that in principle, unfortunately not always in practice, um, that civilians should be spared. Now, this gets really complicated in the 19th century, because in parallel, you get, by the 19th century, you have the customary law that civilians should be spared on both sides. And yet in the 19th century, you get this beastly growth of nationalism where in parallel, you get the lawyers and the Red Cross people, people like that saying we should spare you know, soldiers who have been wounded, but also civilian populations, and we should introduce laws that are universally accepted about limiting war. And at the same time, you get nationalism, which worse than anything that you'd ever had before, except for the religious wars and conventional wars, says every single member of another nation is actually an, an enemy, which of course culminates in the Nazism where you suddenly have this racial definition of of who is an enemy and who isn't. Um, And so yet in parallel, the attempt to uh, give ever more protection to civilians and ideologically the drive to see civilians of the other side in total as enemy down to the babe in the cradle, as Ludendorff put it. And then um, this culminates, really, this goes on with the Second World War, not only with the Holocaust, the Shoah, um, but also with this sort of mindless bombing of cities in all sides, where uh, the ideal, you know, it this could be sold to some extent by saying we hope that we can shorten the wars by making the enemies push their governments to surrender, which they never did. Um but there's also the sort of the nasty side of it though know, they're all they're all guilty, they're all guilty. um you still have lots of this city bombing after the Second World War, Korean War, Vietnam War, and somewhere there there is a watershed. So by nineteen seventy seven, in the additional protocols of the Geneva Convention, we suddenly have the recognition, the total recognition, that bombing cities is a war crime. And all of a sudden, um, not all of a sudden, I think coming with that turning point, uh, you get people very much interested now also in limiting nuclear war and seeing how you can um, spare civilians, even in nuclear war, and in all sorts of forms of bombardment to the point where today, we find it absolutely outrageous um when civilians are being bombed even if it's explained in terms of collateral damage and something that is unavoidable because some military aim needs to be uh, followed so but, but you could take it one step further and say that this is a bit are we now too far on the other side because how how innocent are civilians uh, and if i can, you just bear with me for one little more, a moment um i've always um i've always resented that terrible Spartan Mother who told her son going off to war that she wanted him to come back either standing on his shield, carried by his peers as a hero, or lying on a bier under his shield. So he, she said, Come back on your shield or under it. Um, you know, people who really want their, and and the sort of classical uh, quote of a mother say, If I had nine sons, the, the mother of Coriolanus, if I had nine sons, I would rather they all died as heroes, that that they lived as cowards. You know, um, I think there's a lot that civilians contribute to the war effort. Um, I don't think they should therefore be bombed. But this assumption that they're all completely innocent, a word that actually means not doing any harm, um, seems to me to go too far unless they're stupid kids and simply too young to have an opinion. But I do worry about how we um, assume that civilians can be, be exculpated entirely for voting governments into power, uh, that then put walls, bark walls.
2: Yeah, that's kind of the uh the logic of behind like some of the debates of total war or totalizing war, as uh uh Jahara Matasek in my previous interview uh said about kind of what context we're in now where we have like social media and all that, and how in some ways everyone's a combatant uh now in some form or or another. They're all participants, so it, it it's kinda it's just Makes it very difficult for de- like precise definitions, but also even just for legal categories, as you just mentioned, in terms of like war crimes or even like how innocent are civilians.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I think this is an area that is going to move in the future. Um, we already know um, that there is a difference in interpretation of who is an innocent civilian um, between the Israeli. I think it's a High Court of Justice who passed a resolution on this. Uh, and uh, many other countries where, to a greater extent, um, in the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, a uh, view of civ- civilians are uh, seen uh, only as non-combatants if they don't literally physically com- uh, contribute in some way to hiding weapons mm-hmm. or storing them or moving them or something like that. And I can see their point. I can see that particular point, And I'm not going to go further in uh, junk- commenting on uh, the Middle East at the moment. Um, But the point is that we, when you're talking about social media, uh, there is a point where I feel that if I I sense that if I'm voting not only for a government and that government uh, sends armed forces to war, I mean, those armed forces fighting for me, who I have voted for that government... Um, In a way, um, they are my agents, but I'm the one responsible ultimately for having made them do that, right? So I think this whole area is going to become blurred also because I think uh, it is imaginable that in future means will be found to identify who has been for something and who has not. If you think about some, some of the possibilities that could arise with IT, and uh, electronic voting, in theory, one should be able to find out who has voted for a particular party or a particular government uh, that has been in favour of one, some action. So, in theory, you might even be able to trace them back and, I don't know, switch off the heating. Uh, you know, and it's—I don't think it's that far fetched to us to think that there might be ways in which one could, in future, discriminate more um, again between the people who have been in favour of something or against. I'm not saying I want this world to come, but I see it coming. Uh, and one of the things that has, of course, been absolutely atrocious in the Second World War, if you think about it, is that in the bombing, uh, in the bombing raids um, on the respective cities, I you think know, particularly on bombing raids against Japan or against uh, Germany, um, the bombs that fell on German cities where you still had Jews hiding, for example, killed them as well. The bomb on Nagasaki, if I remember correctly, killed a lot of American prisoners of war. Uh, you know there is this terrible way in which particularly bombing and this, these these military means that we had available then uh, was so um non-discriminatory whereas i think um there's been a great um search for things that are more discriminating uh, and i could just imagine that within the next i don't know 20 30 40 years a means might be found to be more discriminating I hope not in a a physically destructive way, but in a very, very annoying way, in the way in which we find that we have, suddenly have our emails hacked because we have said something against the Russian government, you know, that sort of thing. And this has happened to many people I know. Uh, So I could imagine things like that becoming more widespread.
2: Now, you kind of touched on this, but in a broader sense, what are some of the prospects for war and our understandings of it for much of the 21st uh, century, in your view?
1: Well, um... It gets back in a way to the whole question of definitions and whether uh, we put into the same pot um, the, uh, I don't know, 40 uh, skeletons found somewhere um, of which we think somewhere of one group and another and whether that could be called war um, and whether we call war something that is non-lethal. Um, whether we call war something that is um, not clearly, uh, can't very clearly be traced to one uh, power originating, is, is, is cyber war, and all the rest of the thing. So um, there's going to be this whole definitional thing, which is all uh, turning on the subject of the human construct and how we define things, um, means that we, um, I'm at sea at now. Um, when asked whether what I think war is going to be like in the 20th century, until, according to all these categories. But I think what we can assume, what we can assume is that, unfortunately, that wonderful momentum that we had, of, since the briand kellogg Pact of 1928, to outlaw war as a state instrument, that is being undermined. We have a horrible return in history to a more 19th century world. That's one thing which means that war is not going to disappear very soon Um, when people like me had hoped that it would within the century or that it would only be confined to being a criminal action by some rogue regimes that the international community could suppress very easily. um, I fear that that is not as likely now for at least the uh, mid-22nd century, 21st century, sorry, uh, as it was for the, um, as we hoped at the beginning of the century. Uh, The other thing is I don't think that what people regard as irregular warfare will disappear. Much to the contrary. I think there will be more and more groups involved in war from proper states, informal states, which is the sort of formal political definition of war, uh, to non-state groups. I can imagine us in some respects coming closer to um late medieval early modern uh, configurations where you have trading powers or you have big economic uh, powers companies hiring mercenaries to defend their security in places um you know you have analogies there like the queen margaret the 1st of denmark which just had queen margaret the uh, 2nd retire queen margaret the 1st didn't have a navy of her own she used to hire uh, pirates to do stuff for her, keep her seas open, um, I can see in a similar way, small states or even the economic or companies uh, hiring people, uh, uh, Venice uh, or the Hanseatic Leagues, and in Hamburg at the moment, the Hansa cities didn't entertain their own standing armies or navies. They hired navies and armies ad hoc to defend their interests. Um, in that respect, a city like Hamburg was like a big economic enterprise, you could say, or the collective merchants there. You could see companies doing that, and companies are already doing that. Sometimes they hire the state. At the end of the 18th century, early 19th century, you had this phenomenon where you had um, British merchants uh, bringing in uh, the United Kingdom, the state to defend their interests because it was uh, such enormous economic interest of the United Kingdom collectively that this was worth doing it. I could see this happening the other way now, that these, with the decline of the Western state, um, uh, the companies find that states can't protect them sufficiently, so they will actually bring in their own forces and that this is the other way around. Um, In that context, one thing though, uh, I have been one of the people who have been preaching the decline of the Western state, not only from the point of view of of smaller and smaller budgets compared with great companies and things, um, but there's on the other hand, the growth of the strength of authoritarian states. And that's something that I haven't thought about very much before. And um, if a country like R- Russia can turn around its economy, because ultimately um, the Russian leadership controls the, the oligarchs, et cetera, to the point where it can really cope with all the sanctions we put on them, cutting off their oil and gas exports and things like that, and turning it around into something like a war economy. And those are strengths which we find would find very difficult to, to uh, emulate. Um, and the way in which China controls its economy again is a is something that we could only dream of and therefore we have a major challenge coming to us that way because with our power dissipating in that respect
2: theirs is growing yes uh there's been a lot of debate about the use of uh private military companies uh, both by states and non-state uh actors and then also yes uh, I know NATO in Europe is uh they're There are constantly a lot of debates about, like, how are they going to help supply Ukraine? Because obviously the war in Ukraine caught them off guard. And now they're finding out that their militaries weren't properly uh, prepared uh, or anything for that challenge. So that kind of. Oh, do you have a thought?
1: Yeah, just one more thing about private military companies, mercenaries, people who are not the soldiers of the state they fight for. Um, I think it's worth keeping in mind that there are multiple reasons for why people might do that. You know, in the Wagner Group, and reading about the Wagner Group, we've been told over and over that a lot of these people were recruited in jails and that there were people who... Uh, were given the option of either staying in jail for life or getting out and they're risking their lives, or that they were very poor people from Eastern Russian provinces and that this was the one way out for them economically, et cetera. So there seems to be, you know, a, a jail motivation or whatever, criminal escaping criminal justice motivation, there seems to be economic motivation, there seems to be all sorts of things. But let us not forget that for some people there, there are ideological motivations, and this gets back to the idea of you know, war is not just something that is exclusively tri- driven by um, the, the wish for survival or the wish to um, enrich oneself. Um, there have been many, many people, you know, particularly also in the 18th century, 19th century, just as the nationalization of armies was taking place. Who were joining one side or the other for strong economic and uh, uh, ideological reasons? You know, they were fighting for the Catholic side or they were fighting for uh, Poland's freedom and things like that. And I think the uh, one of the things that is horribly neglected is the extent to which, particularly um, young people, idealistic people. Are willing to risk their lives um, in order to promote an ideology that they've somehow been espoused, that they think is very, very important and that is much more important than their lives. And I think that element there must really not be neglected, um, even when you're talking about now private military companies and other things that come in, more or less in that category.
2: Yes, uh, my colleague, Sanisha Malsevich, uh, did a study on private military companies and he kind of determined most of them are actually driven more by patriotic, like they think it's a continuation of their ordinary military service or they're helping their nation's military interests, even if it's more informal. So it's more blurred, as you said earlier.
1: Actually, it's a real mess. You've seen from absolutely everything I've told you, how the definitions really only apply here when they were made or there when they were made, and how it is incredibly difficult to find something that really applies across time and space and uh, civilizations. Uh, You see how very strongly it's always to do with the ideas that we were uh, speaking about at the very beginning.
2: Yes. Uh, Now, you actually host your own podcast, Talking Strategy. I, I am a personal fan. In fact, I just last night I listened to the latest episode on grant and lee and this is for russi the royal united service institute could you introduce our uh, listeners to that and yes there will be a link uh to to it
1: with great pleasure and um, and this is not just mine it is together with paul o'neill who is a uh, is retired from the uh, royal air force um and he's absolutely brilliant to work with and it was really his idea and it comes from him so i was really really honored and delighted to come on board what we did first was in two series to introduce major strategic theorists. Um, so that's your classic Jomini Clausewitz, and anything up to Mahan, Corbett, et cetera, et cetera. We started with Corbett, inside. Then we had two more series. The th- third one was mainly about practitioners, people who are thought of as great generals, um, occasionally a great uh, um admiral. Uh, and we've uh, towards the end of our fourth season, in which we are now. We've gone in further and further towards also looking at people, and this is from all over the world. We're doing this from this is from Latin America to Japan. Our latest the podcast we just recorded um, is actually about a Japanese reformer who is more or less the father of the Japanese Navy, and how people managed to introduce change or great uh, um, uh, reforms in their armed forces and the obstacles they had to overcome in order to do this. So um, it's become more and more now looking at not just practitioners on the battlefield, but also practitioners in leading the armed forces. And we had some very, very interesting interviews always to conclude each series with practitioners who themselves taught taught us about their um, experiences in in trying to bring reforms through, but also in how they thought about strategy. So, yes, I I, I join you in, in advertising our Talking Strategy podcast from the Royal United Services Institution.
2: Uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, if for any of our listeners who really enjoyed this conversation, I urge you please go over and listen to Talking Strategy. Uh, Beatrice, you're a really good uh, podcast host. You ask a, a lot of good questions. So,
1: thank you very much.
2: Now, do you have any final thoughts, maybe touch on anything in the book that we didn't get to uh, before?
1: Yes, I an omission from my book, a big omission from my book, because my book was supposed to contain a whole section on making peace. That would be a logical way to in- end a book on war, but we were already running over length. So that's my next project. And I already have some preliminary thoughts there, which are directly relevant to what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. And um, to what's going on also in the Middle East. And that is that making peace becomes exceptionally difficult when it's not just about a particular piece of land, a particular limited grievance that the war has been fought. But when both sides, or however many sides are involved in peacemaking, uh, realize that there is something much bigger at stage, at stake, sorry. Namely, the world order after the peace, and that is what is at stake in Ukraine and at least the Middle Eastern order is at stake in the Middle East. So that complicates making peace horribly because you can't easily find a compromise. Because in fact, the peace that you're making will be um, taking you on either one track or another from the point of view of a larger order afterwards. And it struck me that this makes it so particularly difficult uh, to find a compromise, because normally if you simply have two sides fighting over a piece of ground, you, you just uh, either divide it up in the middle or you can invent something really brilliant like the European Union uh, to make borders irrelevant from many points of view. You know, there are all sorts of things you can do, and you can practically arrive at something that is a compromise, and both sides can see that the compromise is better than fighting on. But when it is about the order that will affect the lives and the 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 freedom or the ideals and the the the, the lifestyle and the, um, uh, the way in which the world operates for generations to come, uh, and then it really becomes incredibly difficult. And this is something I'm struggling with at the moment and puzzling over.
2: It reminds me of that famous quote from the Versailles Treaty: "This is not peace; it's just a truce for." 20 years.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, and the the way in which uh, a, a, such a peace settlement will be very, very difficult then to uh, be a uh, lasting. And one of the most important criteria, I think, of a good war or a just war, a justifiable war, is something that then brings on a lasting peace afterwards, a
2: just and lasting peace. And that's the most difficult challenge. Well, when you finish some of that uh, other work you were talking about, maybe we could have you back on the podcast. Stephen, I'd be delighted.
1: Thank you very, very much for having me today
2: uh beatrice hooser uh thank you for joining us on the new books network